the world's favorite tax collector who became a follower of Jesus. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through 28 days of Matthew. Wait, so we are in Matthew 22, and uh, we are getting, we are now in the last 25%, the last one quarter of the book of Matthew. So it's going really, really quick. Jesus has found him way, his way into Jerusalem. Uh, he had, yesterday, he got in a cult. He walked into Jerusalem. And so now he's, uh, he's continued to teach, but the Pharisees are after him. And he knows that the Pharisees are after him, and he knows how it's going to end. Uh, and yet he still boldly teaches and uh, does the things that he needs to do so that he, uh, he finally finishes strong uh, in Jerusalem. So uh, that's what we're, where we are. We're going to start at Matthew 22. And uh, so let's go to Matthew 22. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared a dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned the city. Then he said to the servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many invited, but few are chosen. All right, so uh, first thing we have right off the bat in Matthew 22 is this parable. And uh, the thing you have to understand about this parable is that it is completely directed to the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's directed to the religious leaders. It's actually directed to all of Israel. Um, this, this wedding feast, if you were to have a wedding, uh, you would typically have a wedding feast. And, you know, you don't have that many weddings, right? So this was an opportunity to invite your friends. It is like this today. You invite your friends. Uh, you invite as many people as you can. They come to the wedding feast. You spare no expense. You have wine. You have food. Uh, everything around the wedding. This was a... Particularly in a small community, uh, a wedding was a big, big, big deal. It was the one, uh, you know, like uh, when they had a hoedown, you know, in the in the mid in the Midwest in Oklahoma. Have you ever seen like uh, Oklahoma, right? And they have the hoedown that night uh, where they have everybody, everybody from town comes, and they all kind of gather together and have this big feast and a big dance and stuff like that. So the same thing happens uh, in Israel when they would have a wedding. Uh, people would come for this wedding. It would be an amazing time. Uh, I understand uh, that weddings lasted about seven days. They didn't just go one night like we do. I mean, these were big, big events. And so 
the the people putting on the wedding would be uh, they would spend months and months preparing for this thing, and they would make sure they knew which calf they were going to slaughter and how they were going to kill it, and all the stuff that they needed to do to make sure that the wedding was just spectacular. And people really, really looked forward to these weddings. The idea of not going to a wedding would be crazy. Uh, it's, it's not only honoring the person putting on the wedding and honoring the bride and the groom, but it would be being a part of the community. I mean, if you had a wedding feast and you didn't go to, if you had an invitation and you didn't go, it would be like the dumbest thing you could possibly ever do. And yet Jesus says, this is what the kingdom is like, right? And what he means by this is that God has prepared a wedding feast for Israel. They are his chosen people. And um, the feast is prepared, and uh, they are in the kingdom, and their call in the kingdom is to love the world around them. Remember to Abraham, I've called you, I've given you a blessing so that you may be a blessing to others. And so the call to Israel was to live as children of the king. If you'll remember, if you've ever done a Passover, uh, or ever seen a Jewish Passover, you can actually get on YouTube and see some Jewish Passovers. They they last a lot longer than the ones I've done, uh, but they, they can go all night and, and they're very, very filled with food and wine and drink and socialization and stuff like that. But part of the Passover feast is to lean back and grab your glass, grab your glass of wine and to sip it and to lean back in the in the chair and show the world that you are God's chosen people, that you are kings and queens. Now that they do very, very well. But there's another twist to that. It's not that you're just God's chosen to sit and do Passover meals and drink wine and and have a wedding feast. It's also that you've been called to love the world and to be the hands and feet of God. And this they were not doing. They were not serving God like they should. Uh, And Jesus saw this as um, inviting them to the banquet, to the wedding feast, And each one of them says, I cannot come, right? I cannot come to the banquet. Don't bother me now. I've got me a wife. I've got me a cow. I have fields and commitments that cost a pretty sum. Uh, Don't call me right now. I cannot come. (laughs) So uh, this is is the indictment on the Pharisees and Sadducees and all the nation of Israel, that they were invited to the wedding feast and they didn't come. Now you and I have been invited to the wedding feast. We are in the kingdom, right? Uh, we are children of the heavenly king. We are children of the creator of the universe. We have all rights and privileges thereof, which means we have been invited to the wedding feast and we can come to the wedding feast now. And what does that mean for right now? It means that we've, uh, you know, I, I hate using these fancy words, but it's justification and sanctification. Justification means that Jesus came and bought and purchased us and brought us into the kingdom without any work, whatever that we've done within ourselves, but also sanctification, that the Holy Spirit uh, is giving us all the, all the power that he has in our life. Uh, we, are, uh, we are not shamed. We have power. We've been redeemed. All these things come to us when we're in the kingdom. And when we don't live like we're in the kingdom, it's like we've been invited to a wedding feast and we just don't show up. Uh, Not interested, sorry. Uh, Paul called that cheap grace, right? You're in the kingdom, but you're not taking, you have the invitation, right? But you've never never lived uh, in the kingdom. And living in the kingdom means that that you act like a child of the king. You serve, you give, uh, you do all the things in the kingdom because you know that the king is providing so much more in your life. 
And you take those leaps of faith to serve and to give of yourself to other people. Uh, and watching the blessings of God shower down upon you when that happens. As a matter of fact, when you start taking those leaps of faith and start living as if you're a child of the king and giving the gifts of the king to the world around you and then seeing how God provides you more gifts even beyond that, uh, you would never ever like leave the banquet because there are so many blessings that have been involved uh, that you see from the hands of God into your life. Um, so the indictment is to both of us, right? It's, it's the indictments to Israel and the indictments to, to us as Christians. Are we living as children of the king? Uh, that's the question. And if we're not, that's what Jesus says. The king looks and he goes, well, how did you get in without, without wedding clothes? And the man is speechless. And so the king throws him out. If, uh, if, even if you've been invited and, you, and uh, you, you don't honor the fact that you are in the presence of the king of the universe, he's not happy about it. He's not happy about it. So anyway, that is, um, that is the first parable, which is the parable of the wedding banquet. We're going to move on to the next one, which is one of my favorite sayings from Jesus, and it's the paying taxes. Matthew twenty-two fifteen. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to God that which is God. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. So uh, again, we have Jesus confronting the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And uh, they definitely are plotting to kill Jesus. They're trying to find anything. We saw earlier how they raised the whole idea about divorce to see uh, if he would respond to the fact that Herod had, uh, you know, committed adultery with his brother's wife and how Jesus would handle that. Jesus handled it perfectly. Uh, and so now they come to him and they say, well, if we can't get him on that charge, let's see if we can get him on taxes, right? Everybody hates paying taxes. He's going to say, we shouldn't pay taxes. And then the Romans will say, that's going to have an insurrection. They're going to put Jesus in jail. Problem solved. So they come to Jesus and they say, should you pay taxes? And Jesus, again, who is so clever and so... Um, insightful. Of course, he's perfect wisdom. So he says, well, show me a coin. So they show him a denarius. And he goes, well, whose picture is on the denarius? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. And he says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and render to God that which is God. Uh, this is one of the best things that you can possibly uh, have that Jesus said, because it explains so much about living in the world around us. Because as a world, we have to have civil government, right? We have to be people that come together and form relationships, governments, or whatever at any level so that we can live together as a people. Uh, but the problem is, is, as I said yesterday, these governments uh, or a king, uh, let, let's go with the king. The more, you know, the more you have a king and you serve the king, the more power the king has, 
The more power the king has, the more wealth he gets, the more power he gets, and he gets larger and stronger and more powerful and more powerful until he gets to the point where he oppresses the people. And as he oppresses the people, the people rise up and they overthrow the king and they you know, get a new king or a new system of government and the cycle happens over and over again. But really what Jesus is saying is that there are two kingdoms. And this is a, this is a very good Protestant lesson because this is something that Luther fought against, right? Uh, back then, the Holy Roman Empire and the Roman Church were kind of joined at the hip uh, and they were so powerful that, G- that, that Luther had to have a revolution called the Protestant Reformation to even uh, you know, kind of break some of that, that hold. Uh, but, but basically, coming out of the Protestant Reformation is, is there's two kingdoms, right? There's a kingdom of God and there's a kingdom of civil authority on this earth so that it will provide protection for the, for the people of God who are worshiping, right? Um, there is a place for civil um, civil governance. And Luther said, Luther was very clear at this, we should follow civil governance as much as possible uh, because God put government in place to protect us and to create a space so that the church can flourish. And that's, but there are two different things. This is a kingdom of the earth. It's called the left-hand kingdom. This is called the right-hand kingdom where, where, uh, where the church, not necessarily the Roman Catholic church, but the whole body of church, the, the communion of saints, every Christian who comes together and, and worships Jesus, that's the church. And there's two different kingdoms. And Jesus is in charge of this kingdom. And there's men, imperfect men, in charge of this kingdom over here. Uh, and that's basically the two kingdoms, you know, doctrine that we have in the Protestant world. And uh, it served us very, very well because that way we can do the things that uh, we need to do civilly, uh, but, but we can still honor and follow God. Um, in this coronavirus, uh, there's a question that has come up is can the government can the government shut down a church here in the United States? That's, that is the big question, right? Because there's some churches that believe very, very, very strongly that we cannot shut down church. The government has no authority over the church to shut it down. And so you will find in the United States today, some churches who are violating orders and they're having these legal battles as to whether or not uh, they should follow the government or not. And then you have other churches, for example, our church, that says, you know, the whole purpose of the government kind of um, reducing and restricting how we can get together is not because they're trying to violate our free speech, but to keep us, spa- keep us safe. Now, there's a couple ways you can look at this, actually. Um, and th- what I want to do is I just want to take a brief diversion. I want to look at a couple scripture passages, if you wouldn't mind. So the first one we're going to look at is Romans 13, 1 through 7. And this is Paul talking to the church in Rome. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of one authority, then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. 
Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So uh, Paul is telling the church at Rome that the, ch- that the governmental authorities have been put into place to provide the church to have space to worship God. And so we should, we should follow governmental authorities. But then we know that there are times in history when the governmental authorities have overstepped their bounds, where they've said, uh, you are not allowed to worship God. You are, uh, look at the Old Testament, right? Yeah, Daniel and, and King Nebuchadnezzar, you have to bow down and worship me. And Daniel said, no, that is a violation of what God has called me to do. That is a different situation. And actually, we have that situation in the book of Acts. Um, let's take a look at that, where Peter uh, is out prophesying and they came and you have to shut down uh, preaching. And Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God. This is Acts 5, 29. We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you hanged by you killed by hanging him on the cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So in this situation, the leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, they came to Paul, Peter and they said, you can't preach anymore. Uh, you cannot do that. And Peter said, I have to. I have to preach because, and you have no authority over me preaching. Um, so that's a different thing. We must obey God rather than human beings. There are times that if a government oversteps their bounds and shuts down free speech, for example, uh, if here in the United States, uh, if they said you cannot do church anymore, you can't do online Bible studies, you can't do online church, uh, you can't you know, follow your mission of what you're supposed to be doing, but just using different tools, uh, you can't do that anymore, um, then, then we have to. We have to speak out. It becomes an Acts 5 type of thing. So the way that I am looking at the shutdown right now is that um, if you look at the mission of the church, right, it's we are called to be disciples. We're, we're to go, therefore, make disciples of all nations by baptizing the name of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's Matthew 28. It's actually, we'll be looking at that next week. Um, I'm, if, if we can't meet for worship on Sunday morning, does that mean we can't follow the Great Commission? Uh, when the, when the apostles got together in Acts 2, 42 through 47, they got together for the apostles' teaching, for fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. That's what the early church did. That's how they made loving disciples was by doing those four things. How can we do those four things even though we can't meet at a church building on Sunday morning? Uh, that's the question, and, and our staff has looked at that, and actually coming up this Sunday, we're going to look at some different ways to look at how we can accomplish more than just the Sunday morning worship service, to do what the Sunday morning worship service is supposed to accomplish, which is apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer, and how can we do those things in a new world? And we might be doing these things in a new world for a very long time, so we're going to try some different things and see how we can accomplish those things. But those are the goal. It's not that necessarily we have to gather together. 
Um, it's nice to get together. There's a lot of benefit from getting together, but we can still follow the we can still follow God's command to make loving disciples. That's what I'm doing right now, this morning in this Bible study. I'm helping you grow in your faith. I'm helping you grow in your discipleship. Um, so that's uh, I'm looking at this as a Romans 12 uh, thing. As not a did I say Romans 12? It's it's a Romans 13. Uh, it's uh, I'm looking at this as a Romans 13 not as an Acts 5. But if we ever got to the point where we were doing an Acts 5, uh, where, where the church and the state were at conflict and the church says, you can't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, then I would absolutely stand up to the government and say, no, we, the, I'm, I have to obey God. I cannot obey man. And, uh, and that's what I would do. Um, do I want to do a digression? I'll do a little brief digression about... Uh, one of the things that governments do, right, is they pool together resources to make the world, to make our world better, right? We do roads, we do bridges, we have the military, we feed people when they're at a low point in their life. You know, we have protection. And of course, the government always expands to more and more and more things uh, because that's what governments do. <laughs> and, um, I read an interesting article in, I think it was Wired Magazine, and I think it was a couple years ago. And it was a story about, I believe it's in New York City. It's been such a long time ago, but I believe it was in New York City. And what happens in New York City is when it snows, uh, the little the little um, flag that sits on a, on a fire hydrant, uh, has it breaks off. And so as it breaks off, when uh, there's a fire, the firemen know about where this fire hydrant is, but they don't know exactly where it is. And so they may spend, uh, you know, 30 minutes trying to find the fire hydrant so they can hook up their hose and they can, you know, put out a fire. Well, that, that'll kill a lot of people. And so they put together a commission to figure out uh, how they could, uh, you know, get these fire hydrants so that they're always clean at the end of a snowstorm. And so the commission looked at it and they said, well, what we need to do is we need to create a new thing called the Fire Hydrant Commission, Right. And um, what we'll do is in this fire hydrant commission, uh, we'll have a commissioner and he'll hire people and we'll give them training, but then we'll keep them on call. And uh, when, there's a, when there's a snowstorm, they'll go out and they'll be responsible for a certain number of fire hydrants and, um, and they'll clean off the fire hydrants. And it was going to cost like $30 million. I mean, some amount, amazing amount of money, right? To do, uh, to clean off the fire hydrants, make sure that they're, but it's, you know, one life is worth $30 million. So it's it's probably a good trade-off when you think about it. I mean, a lot of these things are benefit-cost analysis that, that governments do. Well, they presented it, I think, at a, at a, a parish meeting or something like that. And uh, they came up with the, the idea of how much it was going to cost. And one of the guys that was there was a tech guy, you know, the gig economy. And uh, he said, wait a minute. He said, uh, you know, what we could do is I could write an app to put on people's phones and people could adopt a fire hydrant free of charge. You know, if they adopt a fire hydrant, then we'll give them that fire hydrant. It's like a pet, right? And when there's a snowstorm, we'll send them a message <clears throat> to, uh, to clean off their fire hydrant. And then they clean off the fire hydrant and they send a message back saying, yeah, we cleaned off the fire hydrant. You know, and these are people that live right next door to the fire hydrant, right? And maybe you have two or three people uh, signing up for each fire hydrant and they take turns or whatever. Uh, so he wrote the app, and apparently now it works fantastic. And then the, the Wired magazine was talking about how this is, you know, the greatest thing since it saved the city 
of New York $30 million just by teaming together and using the resources that are right there. And the point of the Wired magazine was that uh, the new gig economy may change what government does and how it does it. We might see, and particularly coming out of coronavirus, right? People, people are doing things in city governments and in county and state governments totally different. There are people that are furloughed right now, sitting at home doing nothing, and you know maybe they're finding out that that particular job could be, you know, is being done by other people, whatever. But there's a shakeup happening. But there's also a shakeup happening in our economy because what the point of this Wired magazine article was, is that um, with smartphones and apps and everything and utilizing the talents and resources that we have in local communities, we might see governments get smaller and more efficient and use more volunteers in ways that they have never even thought about it. And volunteers will feel good about it because you know they're, they're feeling proud that they're volunteer. I mean, Pima County has volunteers all the time. There's volunteers for everything. Uh, I volunteer for Pima County. Um, so it's just kind of expanding that network of volunteers and getting the work that the county needs to do uh, with volunteers, perhaps, uh, and giving them the training and the resources and on all that sort of thing. So I, I think, um, I think, you know, we tried to go after, uh, the town of Vail, uh, back in 2014 and it failed because people don't like government. But if we ever go back to a town of Vail, my goal or my, you know, my input to whoever does that is let's try to find smart ways to get things done that need to get done. So we don't have to make, uh, we don't have to, I mean, obviously you have to hire people. There's no question about it, but happens over time. Like city of New York is 200 years old, right? Uh, you're, you're talking about a lot, a lot of people with a lot of different jobs. And it just, I mean, it makes sense that the government's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, but then at some point it gets so huge that it crushes the people. So anyway, I don't want to get into that uh, soapbox. So, uh, where are we now? We are going to go to, um, Matthew 22, Jesus is going to talk about marriage again. Verse 23, that same day, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us and the first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brothers. The same thing happened to the second and third brother right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Wow. So um, <laughs> there were two groups of people, uh, as we've said, in Jerusalem. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. <clears throat> and the way you can always remember the Sadducees is that they didn't believe in the resurrection. So they were sad, you see. <laughs> and... Uh, the reason why they didn't believe in the resurrection is because uh, the, the nation of Israel was very much tribal. Uh, if you look at, at the history of Israel, you look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, there was a tribe. 
And when you live in a tribe, uh, you might go to Amazon and see people that live in tribes, right? Um, what's important in tribes is that the tribe lives on, right? That um, when a person dies, like let's say your father dies, what would they do? They would go and get dad's bones, right? And if the true tribe ended up moving from one place to another, they would bring the bones with them. This is not necessarily Israeli, uh, you know, but, but this was the culture all around. Uh, and it's still the culture today in some communities, you know, in the Amazon or whatever, they live in tribes. Um, it's more important for the tribe to survive. And when dad dies and you bring the bones, the spirit of mom and dad are with you. So they never really die, right? That is, um, that is kind of how these, uh, I wouldn't want to call them primitive, but tribal cultures operate. It's not individual. If an individual dies, you're very upset, you're sad, but the spirit of that individual, right, comes into the tribe and, uh, and, the, and the tribe lives on. And that's the kind of mindset that was around Israel and whatever. And so the, the Sadducees, uh, they had kind of gone down on this path, which is that when you die, you're dead forever and there is no living, there is no resurrection. Uh, it's more important for the tribe to survive than individual people and their spirits to survive up until the resurrection. Um, but the Pharisees, on the other hand, believed very much that there was a resurrection. They believed that at the end of time, there would be a resurrection from the dead and uh, you know you would see these people again. And so there was constantly this battle between the Pharisees and the Sadducees about whether or not there was a resurrection. And of course, Jesus shows <laughs> once and for all that there is a resurrection, right? that the Sadducees were incorrect and the Pharisees were correct. There is a resurrection and we can be confident. And if you go back into the Old Testament and start looking as Jesus did, right? Uh, the, 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 there, there is definitely a scripture pointing to the fact all throughout the Old Testament that there is gonna be a resurrection. Um, so Jesus had the last word on the resurrection because he was uh, raised from the dead. And because he was raised from the dead, we someday will be raised from the dead. Now, the crowds around Jesus are astonished by this. The Pharisees are probably happy. I've been told uh, through you know readings that the Pharisees are probably more um, uh, in line with Jesus. They probably were more friendly with Jesus. They didn't want an insurrection, uh, but if you know they didn't necessarily want to kill Jesus, but it was really these Sadducees that really, really you know were angry at Jesus. Uh, because Jesus completely had teachings that were totally against what they believed. So um, that's the marriage at the resurrection. It's, um, there are some uh, denominations or some sects, I guess I will say, uh, that, that believe that, that families and marriage will last uh, into uh, the resurrection, that, uh, that if you die, uh, you, you and your wife, you know, at the, at the last day, you can call your wife up and call your kids up and be like a family again. And um, it, first of all, it does go against what Jesus said, right? There's no marriage in heaven. But the other thing is, is that how do you, how do you reconcile the fact that you've got kids? Like, do you want your kids then to go and have their own families? And what about their kids? I mean, it, there's no end to it, Right. Family structures exist here on earth because of the earth um, to provide nurturing for kids. You know, you only get to raise your kids once in life and it's the most amazing, fantastic, wonderful time in your life. Um, 
but you only get to do it once. You can't go back and do it again. Uh, at the resurrection, though, there will be so much joy uh, being in the presence of God and doing whatever heaven is going to be like that you won't necessarily uh, have to go back and raise your kids again. Maybe you can go back and relive certain portions of that with your kids. Maybe your family will get together portionally. Maybe they'll get together with, you know, your wife or your or your husband. He has family too. I mean, it's just, it makes sense what Jesus is saying. And the idea that, that you know, this static family at one point in time is going to exist in the future just is intellectually um, inconsistent. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, I we'll find out when we get, we know that heaven is a wonderful place and we're going to love it. Uh, and there'll be no tears, uh, there'll be no sorrow, and there'll be relationships abundant in heaven. And that's what I'm looking forward to. All right, so uh, the crowds are astonished at Jesus' teaching. So he goes on to another teaching. Verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with the question, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love your God, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is this, just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So um, in the Old Testament, the first 10 commandments that were given to Moses, the 10 commandments, can be condensed into these two commandments. Like the first three, uh, you know, honor your father, uh, you know, have no other gods before me. Do not take the name of the Lord God in vain. Honor the Sabbath day. All those initial commandments are ways that you love God. Um, the other commandments, you know, do not kill, do not, you know, do not lie, do not commit adultery. All the uh, honor your father and mother. Those are how you love other people. Now, the commandments that Jesus gave, you have to remember, are those commandments. They're a handbook to us. It's not because God doesn't love us. It's because God loves us that He gave us the Ten Commandments. And he calls us to do the Ten Commandments because they're how we're created. And then Jesus boils it down to only two. And the way we're created is that we need to love God. Psychologists say this all the time. You, you know, if you're going to fight an addiction, right? The 12-step uh, the program for Alcoholics Anonymous or the 10-step, whatever that is. You know, one of the steps is you know, acknowledge a higher power and call on that power for help. The, there is, uh, because we're created the way we're created, we have a deep longing desire that there's something bigger than us out there that we can worship. Uh, and so, you know, this whole idea about putting God first in our life uh, is a very, very good idea because if you put other things in front of God in your life, it can lead you down holes that will destroy you. And God knows this. And so he says, love me first. And so that's the first part of the commandment. And then the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because we're a relational people. Um, we live and crave for relationship. I'm craving for relationship in the midst of this lockdown. And I can't, uh, I can't wait to see you again. I, if you are all alone and you have no relationships, it, it'll destroy you. And the second table of the law, the last commandments, love your neighbor as yourself, are there so that you love your neighbor and you stay in relationship with your neighbor. Um, and by loving God and loving your neighbor, you are living the life that God has for you. You're living, uh, you're living the life. I mean, it's, it's what God wants for you is to live that way. So the greatest, Jesus boils it down to just two commandments. 
because the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? We had the Ten Commandments, and then those expanded to even more commandments. And so like, how do we follow all these commandments? And Jesus is like, listen, just love God, love your neighbor, that'll be good enough. And it is good enough. Uh, it, is, it is the greatest, right? Love is the greatest commandment. Love God, love your neighbor. It's how we're created. God lives in love. God is love. Um, God is, is, is uh, created us to love and to be loved. Let's put it that way. All right, so um, we're gonna just go to one more thing here, uh, or maybe it's two more, I can't remember. Verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put enemies, your enemies, under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared him ask any more questions. So the Pharisees are going to try to trick Jesus one more time. Uh, uh, so Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? So Jesus is, remember Matthew says that Jesus is the Messiah. And so the stories that he's putting in are aligning with the fact that Jesus is proving that he is the promised Messiah. Now the Pharisees and Sadducees would never have seen Jesus as the Messiah. And, but Jesus says, who do you think is the Messiah? And they said, well, it's the son of David. And he says, well, how is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? Hmm? For the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So how, why would David, if the Messiah is the son of David, why would he say that you're my Lord? How is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? How can the Messiah, the son of David, call him Lord? In other words, this Messiah can't be just simply a uh, somebody in the line of David who's gonna take over an earthly kingdom uh, and rule just like David did. It's not an earthly thing, Jesus says. It's a, it goes deeper than that because he says, you're my Lord. In other words, the promised Messiah has to come from God. The promised Messiah has to be the anointed one from God and he has to be elevated more than just a son of David. He has to be something more than that. Uh, of course, we find out that something more is Jesus himself someone who has power over life and death, power to teach, power to have authority. Uh, and Jesus shows that he is the Son of God. Uh, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees are speechless about this. They don't understand how to, how to respond to this, but Jesus shows them. Next week we'll show that Jesus rises from the dead and uh, he shows them that, that there is a resurrection and he truly was the Messiah, the promised one, the called one from God. The one they were looking for, simply someone to kind of take over and be a powerful king and be a mighty king and overthrow Rome and bring Israel back to the forefront, you know, as the power that God wants them to be. Jesus says, no, we were never meant to be a mighty power. It was never meant the kingdom of God on earth. This, this children of God, the people of God that God made Israel was never to lord it over anybody else. It was to serve. But I'm going to show you a different kingdom. And my kingdom is greater than any kingdom. Because it is a great kingdom. Because we live in that kingdom now, right? It's a kingdom that will never end. Because of our baptism, we are in that kingdom and we serve a loving God. And he walks with us in every battle of life. He's redeemed us. Uh, he sanctifies us. And he gives us the greatest joy that there is, which is to be in the kingdom.
So that is the end of Matthew 22. Tomorrow we'll go to Matthew 23. Thank you for joining me today, and uh, we are going to close in prayer. Gracious God, um, we thank you for your son who had so many incredible teachings, teachings that are so applicable today in our world around us. Help us to heed those teachings. Help us to love you and to love the world around us and to serve you and to serve the world around us. Um, be with us until tomorrow and keep us all safe. Uh, in your son's name we pray.